0: When you look at the profile of an impresario, because people don't sit down and Google impresarios, but if I am one, and I call myself one in a weak moment, you may plan your life, you may be smart and strategically brilliant about how to get from A to Z, but the best things that happen to you come out of left field.
1: This is Barbara St. Clair, your host for AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. And I am here with Zev Buffman, who is the CEO of Ruth Eckert Hall and some other things as well.
0: Uh, (laughs) Okay. I've been here for five years as president and CEO of Ruth Eckert Hall. I can kind of blow right through how I feel by saying the best five years of both my business life, family life, and everything else.
1: For people who don't know Ruth Eckerd Hall, can you tell us a little bit about what function it serves and what people might see when they come to Ruth Eckerd Hall?
0: Yes. And my answer is going to be, again, different than many other presidents of performing arts centers, because we are totally different than the perception of what a performing arts center in Tampa Bay or anywhere in Florida or in the country may be. But what we do primarily is that I run Roo Hall, which is a 2100 seat, single floor, kind of a democracy statement, no balcony, no second balcony, everybody together, space with perfect acoustics. And we produce about 150 events a year, every year, which is a lot. It's almost every other day. And when you figure out that you need setup time and technical time and all that preparation, we're about as busy as we possibly can be. And it's very good. Ruth Hecket Hall is owned by the city. We actually manage and run it for the city of Clearwater. Education is Ruth Hecket Hall's middle name, education. And so, in the first year, we started teaching in 12 schools throughout the entire county, spilled up to Pasco and spilled into Hillsborough. Our task this year is to go into 20 schools, not because it's a fancy number, because we can and there's a need. So with education, we created a new festival called the Grammy Revolution. And we have a partnership with the Grammy Awards, which has been going on for four years. And we're the only ones in the country who have that relationship. We get together at Ruth Hall at the Murray Theatre for one month of boot camp. We go around the three, four counties around and find the best students, teenagers, 13 to 19, who are into music and want to be in music. We audition them, we go through 200s or 300 we pick 30 or 40. Then from every school around them, you can't imagine. The only thing they have in common is music. And we tell them to compose, orchestrate, perform, direct, light, and do the technology for 30 new musical numbers in 30 days.
1: 30 new musical numbers.
0: 30 new musical numbers. And we give them ideas and tell them what to do now. And at the end of a month, they show up on stage. We we'll think it all over the Capitol. We switch them back and forth. And, and it's mind-blowing. And it's unbelievable what these kids could do. But we latch on to them. We don't let them go. So we start using them we have a lot of shows we have a lot of opening acts i mean when chicago plays the building they say we have to bring an opening act Do you have any ideas we say you're all set don't worry about it and we introduce them to our jazz kids or our rock kids or whatever and they open for a show like chicago or bob dylan or whatever our kids and then they continue on the road they tour but we latch on to all of them we use them at every possible conceivable event when we do festivals and we do many downtown, we, every month we do a big musical event in the streets or Old Clearwater on Cleveland Street. Kids are involved when the Jazz Festival opens. Our kids are there performing. I've always been a producer. I produced forty-one Broadway shows. So producing events, whether on the road or Broadway, is old hat to me. And I fear, I fear it not. My first theater was when I was twenty-three as a foreign. Exchange 20, you were 23 in Hollywood, California, okay. and I was—I couldn't—I even, I barely—I just came out of the war in Israel, the war of independence. Yes, I'm that old, and went to L.A. to become a movie star. One of the things that I did is I picked up a beat-up old place that was called the Hollywood Canteen in World War II, and that's where all the stars would meet the G.I.s and dance with them. And they were going to tear it down because a parking garage was needed in the corner of Hollywood and Ivar or Hollywood and Vine. And I came into some money because I produced at age 21, 22, a show that just suddenly ran for six, seven months. So my partner sent me a check for $35,000. My half of the profit, I was still in college. I was getting my master's. And I went down and I, a little before the chopping block, bought the La Theater. It was called the Hollywood Canteen. I changed it to the Grand Theater tore it down and rebuilt it completely in what it was then. I didn't know what it was. The first dinner theater in America. Later, it was copied everywhere, cabaret theater, dinner theaters, but that was when I was 23.
1: Right, and then you built a theater in, in Miami?
0: Yes, that was my first restoration job. There was a theater, there still is, the Coconut Grove Playhouse. It really got some fame. And in 1962, I found my way to Miami for the first time ever in Florida, because I was an L.A. and New York guy, but not Florida. But I had a show touring. It was playing the Seattle World's Fair. It was called Pajama Tops. It was a big hit. Today, it would get a G rating. In those days, oh, my God, it was three ladies in in bikinis on the French Riviera trying to convert a guy who supposedly was homosexual. Oh, wow. My God. 1962. And it people loved it, people adored it. It ran and ran and ran. And I needed to move it from Seattle at the end of the World's Fair in '62 to the next theater, and the next year, and have my first national tour. Well, the theater I was going to was in the Nixon Theater in Pittsburgh. It burned down the week before we were arriving. Stage burned down. We had no place to go. We had cities to go to later, but not for the immediate future. I got to Miami Beach because some guy said we got a theater for you. And he came to see the show in Seattle, and he said, when you ever need anything in Miami Beach. Called me and, I, and they showed me this movie house on Arthur Godfrey Road, which is still there. And they said, This is where you play. It was an X rated movie house. And I said, Are you guys kidding? You don't have a stage, you don't have dressing room. This is a movie house. You're nothing. So that night, I did the Larry King show. Larry was just starting his career in a houseboat across from the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, a talk show at midnight. Larry King and friends. And Larry says to me during a break, He said, So what are you doing here? And he said, "Are you dealing with the uh, Kaplan family?" Because he knew the theater, and I said, "Yeah." And he whispers, as if we're on the air or something. He says, "They are the strongest arm of the mafia in South Florida." And I said, "Meaning?" He said, "Meaning everything." I said, "Okay, thank you." And the next day, I'm coming over to meet the head of the family because they're like eleven brothers and fourteen sisters. It seemed like an army. And I said, "I'm not playing here." And I don't care. So Marty Kaplan, the head of the family, says, get in the car. He's got this big forever Cadillac, fish tail, And I'm getting in the car and I'm saying, OK. I dodged the bullets in the war. I got out of that. Here I am. I was looking at street signs so if I can open the door, because he locked the door. I can run out and say, pick me up at 7th Street and 9th Avenue or something. And we're driving and driving. It seems like forever because when you don't know where you are, it's forever. And we get to a place, run down village. Terrible shape. And there's this thing that looks like a theater, but it's got huge chain link on it. And it's padlocked in bankruptcy. And I said, what are we doing here? He said, I'll get, I got a key. when I'll get the key. He opens it September 1962 in Miami Beach. I mean, can it be any hotter or any more humid? He opens those doors. It's dark. We don't have a flashlight. I know my way around theater. I was born. It's like a kid knowing church when he goes to church at age six, seven, eight. I knew theaters even then. And I find my way towards an exit door. No exit sign because of extra no electricity. I pop open a couple of doors, and there's air coming in. And I look, and there's this 800 seat full of cobwebs and dirt and everything theater. The coconut rope lay Looks like a total disaster. And I sit down, and this is my favorite place. It's like going to church, and you sit in a, simple, in a regular place, and you know where you like. I sit at the edge of the stage with my feet dangling in the orchestra pit. I love doing it. I still do it because it's theater. An empty theater is like a shrine. And I'm listening because theaters have sound. They talk or they make a new music or they cry or they do things. I believe that. I believe it. I grew up in theaters. My dad owned two theaters when I was 13, 14, 15 in Tel Aviv Israel. So I hear this little voice, I swear. Now, I'm in a the theater. And, of course, my imagination has no bounds. But I hear a little voice saying, save me, save me, save me. Oh. I'm going for it. I'm going, wow. I said, OK, I'll do that. I'll do that. And I walk out and I said, Marty, you get your people, you clean them up, I'm going to bring the company here. And then they clean it up and everything. And a week later, the company arrives from Seattle. We're supposed to be there for two weeks at the Coconut Grove Playhouse, a beat-up building that was just cleaned up. One week later, the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, Jack Kennedy president breaks. Miami Key West, and we were in South Miami, fills up with 100,000 soldiers, Coast Guard, Marines, Navy, Air Force, everything getting ready to invade Cuba. That's the way it was going. And Pajama Tops actually like show girls with bikinis and yet not one dirty word in it. So I canceled the next three cities and I send all soldiers, Navy, every Coast Guard, half price for the next two weeks. And they come in because they got nothing to do and the war hasn't started. And we became a popular hit and then we ran until December 15th. So from September to December, then the troops left, but the show just ran because people liked it. During that time, I got an option to buy that building, rebuild it, restore it, and I bought it for peanuts. And I got a lot of people together, and we really used every favor, because I was not really at it. I had two Broadway shows under my belt at that time, 1960 and 1961, but I was a novice. But I was involved in theater in LA. I, I ran four theaters while I was in college. So I was ready, I knew how to. And I put together a season of star shows, movie stars and comedies and plays. People may not remember the comic Jack Carter, but Jack Carter at that time was a giant. He did A Thousand Clowns at Broadway hit. Eva Gabor was around in the live at the time in The Very Hot. Did uh, A Shot in the Dark, which was a very popular show. Uh, Dan Daly, a dancer, a movie, Betty Grable's partner, did I did a the first musical, Guys and Dolls, in that building. I just threw shows together, produced all of them. It was hard. Two two-week rehearsals in New York, because that's where the talent was from bring them down for two nights and then throw them on stage in run. Next two years, I redid that building. I added a balcony of 400 seats so that it could hold, have the capacity to do musicals, but 800 wouldn't do it then. And that was my first renovation, restoration of a historical landmark. And I ended up doing about 10 of them around the country through time, including the world-famous National Landmark Chicago Theater. Mm -hmm. Whenever they show Chicago now, they saw that big marquee. Right. The theater was in ruins in the late... 80s, Frank Sinatra was my partner, and Stephen and Edie were my my partners, and together, we we had a life together at that time, and we, together, they didn't do anything, they were working, but I was the producer-builder, and together with the City of Chicago, we put together $50 million, which was a fortune then, and totally restored the Chicago theater to what it looks like now, and then I took it over and ran it for years and years and did shows. ended up with seven theaters in the state of Florida, including what is now the Mahaffey, Elizabeth and Richard was about a five-year chunk of my life. While it was immensely successful, it was a hard, super-shrink time. This is where producer is really a shrink. It began with my meeting Elizabeth. I was in Washington, D.C. I, if I tell the whole story, it take two weeks, but I'll cut through it because it was fabulous. I was in Washington, D.C. I opened a musical called Brigadoon on the way to Broadway, a revival, because it was never... Nobody was reviving plays in the 80s. It's amazing. My philosophy, again, we have many philosophies through life, but in the 80s, when I was a thriving Broadway producer, the, the Brits and the French, the Miz and Andrew Lloyd Webber, invaded Broadway, so it was all English or French productions, Phantom of the Opera, Cats you name it, and no American product was starving. Because most of our best writer went to Hollywood to get TV contracts, no scare, no fear, that your show will flop in the week. So the big good writers went to Hollywood to do TV series, and it was a drought. And I said, hold it. We don't have Beethoven, we don't have Schubert, we don't have Mendelssohn, we don't have those people. But we have Rodgers and Hammerstein, Gershwin, Cole Porter, Lerner and Lowe, let's give them a new life. So I'm opening Brigadoon on the way to Broadway at Wolf Trap Amphitheater, and I was on the board. I was roped in because I was desirable. I would do shows, would help. And Elizabeth Taylor was on the board. I actually joined Wolf Trap when Jimmy Carter and, and Rosalind Carter were in the White House. So traditionally, the chairman of Wolf Trap Amphitheater was the first lady. So my first gala was with Rosalind Carter, and I put on the gala, brought a lot of stars, and we did well. The following year, Wolf Trap burned down in '881 when Reagan came in. And we rebuilt. Well, I raised the money, I raised a fortune. Anyway, Brigadoon opens at Wolf Trap, moves to the National Theater in Washington, D.C., downtown, the oldest theater, and it's still there. And the lady who ran, Kay Shouse, who was no longer with us, who was 85 then, Kay Shouse ran Wolf Trap, and said, do you mind? And we were like on a sidewalk. We are getting to go into the opening night of Brigadoon, and I'm a nervous wreck opening nights, so I'm not fit to be around. And she said, darling, listen to me, listen to me, because huh, I'm like this. I'm like, Quicksilver, I, mean, I don't know where I am. And she says, there's a senator's wife that wants... To, she got... He, he's working late, and she's got nothing to do. And she'd like to join us. Can we have a third seat? I said, sure, I'll get it. a third seat. So I call somebody over and said, get me another seat where we are. It's done. We wait on the sidewalk, wait for the senator's wife, whoever, and I'm cussing. And I finally say, Kay, I, I, I got to sit there. The curtains go up in two minutes. We go and we sit. So I'm sitting on the aisle, what I always do on opening night. And I leave an open seat here, and then Kay is in the third seat from the aisle. And the Overture starts, and the first scene is the most, Brigadoon is the most difficult. Why? Because it's a transformation through the mist every 100 years. The village of Brigadoon appears mysteriously for 24 hours and then goes away. And you have to do it upstage, stage, and that's hard. And this was in the 80s when technology was not as giving and forgiving as it is now. So I'm at the edge of my seat, the Overture is a beautiful score, and the curtain goes up, and the mist, the, you know, and the glowman, I mean, in just Scotland and all that stuff. And through my left ear, I can hear clump, 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 <laughs> heavy feet, clump, clump. What the hell is that? But I'm, look, I'm focused. I'm looking ahead, looking ahead of the curtain. And I feel an arm pushing, a hand on my arm, like pushing me, like move over. And without looking or anything, because I'm, I'm looking I'm riveted on the stage, I switch seats and I go over to the next seat. And somebody plunks over and sits. And I figured, OK. And I'm waiting for the curtain to come down on the first scene. Big applause, applause. And I turned to my left and I reach out my hand and I said, my name is... And the Z <laughs> never finished because those eyes, yeah. Elizabeth's eyes, were looking me right in the face. <laughs> the eyes, you never get used to them. But anyway, that began. Uh, what happened is that she stayed for the cast party, she danced with everybody. Then the limo came, I got her through a limo, and I said, you want to do a Broadway show? And she was, she weighed 200 pounds then. He ran for the Senate. She got Warner elected. They were kind of on the cusp of divorce after that. I was in the middle of all the gossip columns and all that stuff because I was seen later too often with her, or very often with her. And uh, she said, the Broadway show? And she said, you know Richard? And I said, yeah, she meant Richard Burton because I presented Richard and Camelot, the, t- the tour. I took the tour all over the country. Richard said that if I ever go on stage, I'm going to have it be a disaster. I'm a cow. She said, he called you a cow? Yeah, she said, that's why we're divorced twice. So I said, listen to me. I'll make you a bet. You make a list of plays you dreamed about or I will make them too. And when can I see you next? She said, how about tomorrow? I said, good. She said, Shall I come over at about 10? She said, well, better come over at 1. I don't get up till 1 o'clock. The driver gave me, the living driver gave me the address. So the next day I go to their home, Senator John Warner's home, and uh, I come in, and a maid takes me over, and we walk through the house, and we're upstairs in the bedroom area, and we go into the bedroom, and she's in bed, and she's having coffee and a croissant, and she goes like that, tapping on the bed, sit. It's kind of unusual, I mean, and she is just in, the, in a nightgown, nothing revealing, nothing, but just... Okay. And the hair is okay. Not as made up as no makeup, but the eyes are there. The eyes are always there. And she said, come on, sit down. Let's talk. Coffee. I said, coffee. And then we get through this nonsense. And she said, I would like to do Sweet Bird of Youth by Tennessee Williams. I said, "Good. Tennessee's a good personal friend. He needs Mm -hmm. a revival. He needs to have his play come back. I'll get a hold of him and see if he'll let us do his play. And she said, I think Tennessee will accept me because I did Night of the Iguana Forum with Richard Burton. And I think he'll accept me even as fat as I am. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, number one option, you have to lose weight. We had this whole negotiation going on over a and she's in bed. And she was drinking and it was just, she was not ready to go on stage and do eight performances a week. And I knew it because that was my job. So we cut a deal that one way or another, and she knew how to lose weight because she had to lose weight for movies. But her movie career, she was 49. Movie career was pretty much over after the Burton divorce. And we worked on the weight. Nobody knew she was losing weight, and I went to New York, I spoke to Tennessee, and he said, I promised it to Meryl Streep, I need to get out of it, she let me out of it. And Meryl was a young, up an upcoming star then, but big star. And I said, ooh. And he said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. I said, well, I got a hot potato here, I mean, I got the lady losing weight. He knew her and he laughed, he was drinking a lot. It's fun to be, I knew him for years before in Coconut Grove Playhouse, because he used to go, he lived in Coconut Grove. How life brings us back together again. So... I go back to see Elizabeth. I said, we may have a problem. Told her about Meryl Streep. She said, oh, geez, it's a problem. I said, what else? He said, well, I always wanted to do Betty Davis' Little Foxes. I said, That's do. That's not been done for so many years. I said, but it's Lillian Hellman. She said, wait, well, I, I met her. She was nice. Oh, I said, you must have had a really lucky day because I met her. She's never nice. Poor Lillian, rest in peace. But anyway, so I'm trying to see Lillian Hellman. She won't see me. She wanted to know why. And I said, I want to do... The Little Fox is starring Elizabeth Taylor, thinking she would say, my career is nearly over. She hasn't written a new play in a long time. But she was so proud and so tough, all 89 pounds of her. No. I go see Lillian Hellman at her beautiful penthouse on Central Park West, tiny chain smoker. And she said, I'm seeing only because my lawyer told me that you're a really nice man and that you're from Israel. I said, oh, okay, that's good. I said, okay. And we sit in a living room, and there are no sofas, there are two love seats. One here, room for two, and one here, room for two. And we're talking. She's drinking coffee and coughing, 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 and a smoke. And I, I wasn't smoking, and it bothered me and all that. And I tell her about Elizabeth, and I tell her about how she's losing weight, how she's going to be great in it, whatever. And she said, no. Do it with someone like, and I mentioned the Tennessee idea, that Tennessee would welcome her, but Meryl Streep, it gets so complex, it's crazy. She'd get me Meryl Streep, the little foxes, <laughs> and come back. <laughs> well, I go back to Elizabeth. I said, "Elizabeth, that lady is really tough. So, but we got used to the idea of little foxes. And when Elizabeth sets her mind to something, it's very hard to pry loose. So I get another meeting, and Ar- Arnold Weisberger, her lawyer, intercedes, and I tell Arnold what I'm going to do, and he says, I'll help you. She really needs, she really needs a hit because she doesn't realize financially she doesn't have much money left. So I said, okay, just, just tell her that I have a new proposition. Okay. So I come in again to the elevator. This is one of those elevators where there's only one apartment per floor, and it opens, and the, the doorman, if there's, not always, but there's a doorman in the elevator, and you, you're right into her foyer. And I come in, and there she is. And This she's, is
1: Lillian Hellman.
0: Lillian Hellman, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I'm into Lillian's apartment, second time within a matter of 10 days. And she said, you got Merrill." I said, no, 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 I don't have, but I, I really want to talk to you about it. I had a couple of pictures that I took that Elizabeth didn't know on a Polaroid. This was days of the Polaroid. And I said, take a look at this. And I show her a really fat picture and take a look at this, which was like recent. And I did the joke with the Washington Post and a picture of like yesterday's paper. I said, it's yesterday's paper. And she looks at one, looks at another, and she tosses away. I thought you had some news. I said, I have some news. The lady is gorgeous. And she gets up and she puts that finger into my face and she said, you lied to me, you had some news. I want you to get out. I'm never going to have that. And I thought she used the word cow, but maybe because she knew Richard too, but the cow knew my play. And as I'm walking on, I am sizzling, I'm burning. I don't have much of a temper and if I do, I use it for a good cause. I'm bringing the elevator. There she is, that little munchkin. She's staring at me with a puffing smoke and I hate her. And uh, the elevator door opened, and I st- and the no elevator guy, and I'm standing in the elevator and going boom, 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 like Samson. The doors boom. are closing, and yeah. you're holding them open. And I'm saying, so I suppose that mean a fuck is out of the question, huh? And she said, what? I said, you heard me. Come here. Coming back. I said it. I can't believe what happened. I can't believe what I said, but I was just angry. And she said, what did you say? And now she, I'm sitting on a left seat right next to her. I said, well, you know, all was lost. I'm never going to see you again. So I said, I suppose the fuck is out of the question. I said, it's, how can, it's, nobody ever, I said, yes, I'm sure some people talk to you that way. Come on, Lillian. You've been around everywhere. You are reputation. I mean, you are not really the nicest person in the world. So fuck you. And I'm getting ready to leave. She says, come back here. We talked for two hours. And she said, OK, I am going to meet Elizabeth. I said, not in this apartment. She said, OK, let's go to the Russian tea room. And we met. We had a lovely lunch. She was an angel for one time. And I got the rights to do wow. this play. That's what it takes time. It's just crazy. So anyway, Elizabeth and I became partners, formed a production company called the Elizabeth Theater Group. And we produced a number of plays together. She was going to do The Little Foxes first, which we did. And then after that, follow with Sweet Bird of Youth, because Meryl, indeed, had a movie commitment, could not do Sweet Bird, The Revival. Meanwhile, Richard and Elizabeth were in touch, but Richard had a new girlfriend, his secretary, that he was dating seriously, and he was lonely and he was getting old fast, he was only, she was 49, he was 55, but she calls me from L.A. just before we start previews in Fort Lauderdale at the Parker Playhouse for the Little Foxes to open it there and then move it on and going to New York, and she said, Richard is coming, and we have an idea. I said, we have an idea, and she said, well, just come on over. So. I fly to Bel Air, California, to her house, which I helped her pick. We're sitting in a pool. She's in a pool, which is in a pool, I'm in a pool. They're, they're drinking Jack Daniels like it's water, both of them. I go, wow. And I'm just sipping on some club soda, very quiet with those icy cold blue eyes, amazing eyes. Because his eyes, we have these amazing eyes. I mean, it's incredible. But she's running the show. And she said, When we were younger, Noel Coward always said that we should do private lives. And I said, private life is about a couple in their early 30s. I said, Elizabeth, you're going to be 50 next year. And Richard said, dear boy, dear boy, he always called me dear boy. He never got off of that. For years have we known each other. Dear boy, we can do 30s. You know, it's Richard and Elizabeth together after two divorces playing a comedy about divorce. We'll make it. So I said, what happens to Tennessee Williams? Elizabeth, you love him. You hugged him. You kissed him. And he said, he can wait another year. And it turned out he didn't. He passed away. But we didn't know that at the time. So they conned me into, not, didn't take much conning. My mind started seeing Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton together again, working for Zev Buffman, doing private lives. It would sell out in a second. So I abandoned Good Taste and Wisdom, Tennessee Williams, really The Sweet Bird of Youth, which would have been a beautiful production for her. And we chose the other one. And that began the two longest years of my life because they never stopped feuding. She was sober other than being a social drinker, because she can drink Richard Burton out on the table. But she could handle her booze, but she was always okay in rehearsal. She was a dream to be with the first year. But then, as we left New York, went on a tour for seven months, and then moved on to London for a year. And then Richard would come meet with us, and then we're going to do private lives. By the time we got to London, she started into, that's what got her finally into Betty Ford Clinic. She started doing drugs, started doing cocaine. Now it's no longer a secret, everybody knows about it. And she would miss performances. I was insured by Lloyd's of London for her missing performances. They came begging because they paid for so many lost performances. And Richard didn't want to do private lives anymore because he could see her collapsing. And so for her 50th birthday, which was the day after we opened in London... I threw the biggest party ever thrown in London history, and I had everybody in the industry come, Andrew Lloyd Webber and all the movie stars and everything, to Elizabeth's 50th birthday. And Richard showed up on... Richard was doing a movie in Austria, so he flew over as a surprise guest, and uh, they made peace. We finished London and then we went into rehearsals in Boston prior to the New York opening of Private Lives. Richard gave me his word that he'll never drink during performance nights. He's very careful saying this. Sunday was his day off. He would so get so drunk you couldn't even find him. Stayed at a Lombardi Hotel, which is a small but very special hotel in New York, and I would lose him. And then come Tuesday, he'd come in, and you could smell, but he wasn't drinking on stage. Elizabeth, on the other hand, was drinking all the time. And private life was not easy, and we were missing performances. And we were together. I had to stay at every hotel that she stayed. It was kind of like in the contract. I had to be in London when she was in London because she was somewhat unstable. I mean, people like Princess Die, people like everybody, the whole... Buckingham Palace was coming to see the show. It was a big political and, and social event. It was not unusual for me. I had a private jet in those days because I had to fly around Elizabeth. And I had Richard coming. I had another star. Cecily Tyson doing a play for Elizabeth and me called The Corners Green. So, so I would fly from home was New York, L.A. and Miami because I had all those theaters in Florida all that time. But it was not unusual for me to fly to the airport, JFK, have the jet park right next to the Concorde, and this was before security got crazy. I just walk from my jet on, say goodbye to my wife, and get in five hours later, I was in London, spend Monday to Friday there, and then come back home on the Concorde. And I lived this crazy life, and it was just very stressful. But the papers were filled with embarrassing pictures about, as Elizabeth, I was touted to be number seven. And we were, I mean, she was alone. She divorced Warner. I was the guy, I was a producer. It's not that we hated each other, we got along beautifully. And so we were seen publicly, literally, and the paparazzis were everywhere, wherever we went. I mean, to talk about a lady who got paparazzi, that's when I learned. I thought Muhammad Ali was one, because I worked with him. I produced a Broadway show with Ali. Nobody hardly everyone anyone knows about. It. I took him to Broadway.
1: That was Buck White, right? Yeah. Nineteen sixty nine.
0: Great, great experience. Anyway. So, you know, that's Elizabeth and I kept on going. We did Private Lives. We did the tour. We were supposed to do an HBO movie of Private Lives with Richard and Elizabeth. Closing night of Private Lives was in Hollywood, California, on Wilshire Boulevard, lovely theater, and there was a big party closing Private Lives after Broadway and tour and this and that. I had all the kids in the family, all, all of her kids from all of the husbands, including Liza Todd, who was my favorite but all of them. And I said, your mom is going to die, kids. I saw them all the time. I saw them for years. They were like, in a way, my kids. they because they're lost. I mean, Elizabeth was the mother, but there was no father anywhere. I said, mom is going to die because she's ODing. She's on the verge of really doing something terrible. So at the end of private lives, we'll do the party. We'll get in the limo, all of us. I got a double stretch. And we're going to go for a drive. We'll drive to Rancho Mirage, California, Palm Springs. And we're going to drop her off at Betty Ford. Maybe they can save her. And they said, okay and we, we actually did that we got in the car she didn't know she thought we were going home a couple of times so she said,
1: when you said that you were a part of why she got to Betty Ford you, you were why she I got to Betty Ford I did her to Betty Ford
0: wow i arranged for it with the kids permission because they had to allow it and with her agent to a good guy agent manager and we left the party at twelve thirty in Hollywood. It's a two hour drive to Palm Springs and somebody was waiting at two thirty three in the morning. Elizabeth was sleeping off the drinks. And where am how come it's taking so long? Oh no it's not. It's pretty soon, pretty soon. And then the door opened, it was like like going to Going to an execution, I mean, like leading someone to the electric chair. And I'm taking by the hand and Liza Todd by the other hand and the two boys behind us. And there's a short walk and the gate opens and a wonderful woman and two other people meet us. And there are no signs of Betty Fort Clinton, but she immediately realized. And she turned around and looked at me with tears running. Mm. She said, what have you done to me? Elizabeth, we'll talk in a couple of They warned me not to engage in conversations Heart and that she will thinking. call me in a week or two. They do call the people they love and the people they... And they apologize as a routine if it works. And everybody quickly hugged and they took her away and the doors closed. And that was it. And two weeks later, she called me and I came over. She was there for months. That, that saved her. her. Yeah. Saved her. Yeah, she went back later for more times, but it yeah. was over. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> she was at her best... She could hold court with the Queen of England, with Princess Di, with the, the Prime Minister of Israel. We went to all those places together. And just be so at home, it was astonishing. It just, she oozed in a charm and she was smart and always was in focus, could read body language, everything, It just that all the years of the studio world with the drinking and the drugs and the operations, and she couldn't beat it.
1: It sounds, though, that you could use that same description of her also for yourself.
0: Yeah. I hope so. I think I've learned a lot, yeah.
1: I think people will be surprised that you are the co-founder of the NBA champion basketball team, the Miami Heat. So we've been talking about arts and culture and education and performance and theaters, and suddenly right out here in left field is a sports impresario as well.
0: When you look at the, the profile of an impresario, because people don't sit down and Google impresarios, but if I am one, and I call myself one in a weak moment, you may plan your life, you may be smart and strategically brilliant about how to get from A to Z, but the best things that happen to you, but you need to recognize that they're there, come out of left field. Um, it's 1987. I'm running the empire of 14 theaters, including seven in Florida. I'm a huge Broadway producer. The mayor of Miami, Xavier Suarez, at that time in the city manager, come to see me at my office in Coconut Grove, right around the corner from Coconut Grove Playhouse, at a beautiful corner office, and uh, they want to talk to me. And the mayor was my buddy, and we played tennis together regularly. He said, the NBA is going to add a team, one team, an expansion team, in 88 or 89. And we don't have anyone who can qualify to put it together. I said, I love, I love the NBA. I love sports. I don't know anything about it. He said, that's not the problem. If we can teach you quickly how to speak NBA, will you do it? <laughs> Xavier, you know, look at my life. I probably got two shows here, three shows theater. I was then just beginning in partnership with Wayne Heisinger, Fort Lauderdale, of starting building amphitheaters, which I did in 1990 to 95. Built four outdoor amphitheaters. I was in all over the place. He said, "Forget that. It's the NBA." The mayor said, "Okay, I have this gentleman called Rick Harrow. He's 27. He's a Harvard graduate from. He's a sports lawyer and." He really knows everything and he's bright and young and energetic and you should, you, he'll teach you about the NBA and then you tell me, call me back in 30 days or sooner and tell me if you want to do it or not. So I meet this guy and within a matter of five days, I know I can do it. Why do I know? Because the team players are the actors on stage. The director is the coach. Season tickets are critical. In season tickets, in sports, critical. Marketing and selling of tickets. I had a network of seven theaters in Florida alone. I was all set up. Raising money, I raised money. I raised money, so much money in my life for every Broadway show. I know I raised, I know the last count was like $500 million between theaters and shows and projects. So raising money is, same like raising money for another Broadway show or a new building. Yeah, I can do it. I just need to know basketball. The one thing that David Stern, the commissioner, said to me, he said, Zev, listen, I know you were born in Israel, you're Jewish, I'm Jewish. I'm going to tell you this. You can't get a team, an NBA team in Miami. To me and to us, the Board of Governors, which is all the owners, Miami is where old Jews go to die and Cubans come to escape Castro. And Cubans do not like basketball. They're into boxing and baseball. So what are you doing here? So I said, I'll tell you what, we're going to build an arena. It's going to have 14,000 seats. What if I come back to you in 30 days or less, and I have sold 10,000 season tickets to the future yet to be Miami? We didn't know it was the heat. We got the name later. He yeah, come talk to me. Because he didn't 10, think 000, you could do that. I got back, I called the mayor, I called the city council members. Sunshine Laws, I had to meet with them separately. I then called every television anchor because I knew all of them from show business. The newspapers, Miami Herald and Fort Lauderdale, Sun Sentinel were huge. And we all met at City Hall outside, Florida style. It was on the water and beautiful. And a zillion microphones. I armed every box office that I had in Miami, Miami Beach, Fort Lauderdale. We actually had box offices in, in uh, department stores mm-hmm. in those days. It was four computers. I had a thousand volunteers, and I said, "We're going on a six o'clock news. By six fifteen, you're going to start getting calls. You ask for a hundred dollar deposit. Season ticket will be anywhere between a thousand to twenty four hundred. Just get the deposit." In my office, also, we added a phone in my office, which is only two minutes from City Hall. Quick walk, and uh, I made the statement. And I had one surprise. Living in Miami was a great friend of mine, and now Julio Iglesias in the '80s was his greatest. His as biggest as Sinatra was mm-hmm. amazing. I know I took him to Wolf Trap to do fun. I did everything. And while Julio was from Spain, still to the Cubans he was Julio Iglesias. I gave Julio one percent. I own nearly half of the team at the team to be because I was the only general partner at the time. And I'm giving you one percent, but I want you to be my face in the Hispanic community, and I want you to be at that press conference and. You know what to say. Hey, he said, I'll sing the National Anthem, whatever you want. (laughs) He was a player. We were buddies. I mean, we were really doing things. So we go in there. We hold that press conference. And Mayor uh, Xavier speaks. And he was a favorite of the Cubans. And then, of course, uh, Julio speaks. Billy Cunningham comes. And he speaks. And the, the sports crowd knew him. And I speak. And then I tell them what the commissioner said. And I said that, you know, he believed that this is a place where Jews come to die and Cubans come to do boxing and baseball. And that was a man, let's prove the NBA wrong. And the phones started. How long did it take you? the Red Sea was parting. And by the next day, we had about 12,000 orders. By the next day. Oh, my gosh. And we sold all the tickets. And then became a chase. And I fell in love with sports. And what it led me to is when you have a sports arena, you get into rock concerts and country concerts and Ah. family shows, Ringling Brothers, Disney on Ice, all that stuff. I was just eating it up. I took a sabbatical from Broadway saying I'll be back in two years. I didn't come back until 2009. So so
1: the heat is kind of a direct line to Ruth Eckert, really.
0: Yeah. At Bond in London, it was the first thing that Andrew and his partner, Tim Rice, wrote in London. They were 17 and 18. They were just out of high school, and they wrote a 17-minute all-male chorus version of Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Code, and about seven songs out of the 24 in Joseph, as we know it today, were written. And he had enough contracts and enough money in the family, because Andrew came from big money, to put in a small theater on the West End, and on the Broadway of London, the West End. And the critics just doped it off, this doesn't belong here. And then he went on to Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita, and he wrote all those hits. And and he was just basking in the glory and cats and you name it, Phantom. So in 83, I see it. I look at it. I read the script. I meet a director. And I'm starting to, I know my Bible very well, especially the Old Testament. I am really a student of the Bible. So I know that story of Joseph and Jacob and all the brothers and in coming from Israel all the tribes the 12 tribes were those were regions I knew Andrew Lloyd Webber's manager said don't go don't go there he was so disappointed he's crushed he hasn't had a flop in his life since then just don't talk about it I said do me a favor let me do it I want to do a workshop of it in either Fort Lauderdale or Palm Beach Florida totally out of the way so finally Bernie his manager Bernie Delfont God a memory for me Anyway, took about three or four trips back and forth. Andrew wouldn't see me because he was busy and he knew what I was coming for. And uh, I got the rights to do it. We added, we beefed it up to 24 numbers. We added girls and boys. We added the narrator, which I said has to be a woman, because that's the second lead. Joseph is the lead and the narrator. And then I put an African-American in a lead with a phenomenal talent. Just a great, great lady. And even though they never meet, because they're in different time zones, Joseph is in the Bible days, and the narrator is anytime she wishes, you could see the love, feel the love interest between the two them. And we got a lot of great dancers. We got a great choreographer together. And we opened this crazy thing that you see now every two, three years, whether you want it or not, it's coming. And we opened it in Florida gently at the Parker Place in Fort Lauderdale. There's a reading, and I had about 14,000 people come during two weeks, mostly subscribers that I invited for nothing. And we got a lot of comments, a lot of stuff. It's a good workshop. We made a lot of changes. Moved it to Washington. And when we opened in Washington, D.C., it was a full-fledged two-act musical. And Andrew doesn't have a clue. And Bernie DelFront is a guy. His manager didn't know. He didn't stay in touch. And I was given the rights. So asking was not a good thing. Ask for forgiveness. Don't right, ask for permission. Right, right. And I live by that. We opened in D.C. and it was a smash. I mean, it was scary. It was so good. So I tried. Andrew was in New York. I went to see Andrew. I said, it's running in D.C. He said, I heard. I heard it's very good. I said, Andrew, you know it's a two-hour show now. I said, what? He said, yeah, we beefed it up. We put the boys and girls. You don't care. You know, it's a a dead property for you. Is my name still on it? I said, yeah. He said, wait a minute. (laughs) So then I got a few phone calls, and we settled that. And I bugged him. I said, let me bring it off-Broadway. Just... Off-Broadway, okay, you got five show, four shows on Broadway, one more opening. What can go wrong? They got great reviews in Washington. And I got him, and it was okay by then. And we were friends, and I remember I invited him to Elizabeth's 50th birthday, how grateful he was. He was a giant even then in 81, 82, but he remembered that. So he said, okay, you got to write, do it on Off-Broadway. I don't want to see it. I don't want to go near it. Forget about it. Off-Broadway is it term of art. Off-Broadway means that it's not in a Broadway zone of like 10 blocks. But off-Broadway theaters are mostly 300 seats, 99% of them. But then there are one or two that are like a thousand. There was a theater called the Anderson Theater. No one ever played it because it was fully unionized and while it was off-Broadway, it was as big as a Broadway house. I built the scenery for a Broadway theater, the costumes, the orchestration for full orchestra. You knew what you were doing. (laughs) All of it. And we opened and got love stories for reviews. The New York Times celebrated us. And when the reviews came out, I got Andrew. He was London. I said, come back. And he arrived at the Anderson Theater, packed 1, 1,100 people. There was a sound mixer right on the aisle. There are seats here, seats behind us. But in the aisle, was a sound mixer. Sound mixing was still done by hand instead of by computer. So Andrew literally storms in like he always did. The little man, fast, fast, fast. Listens for one second, goes to the soundboard, kicks. ha! <laughs> The sound mixer her away. I'm behind <laughs> the sound makes sound mix is ready to punch him because he thinks he's a guy from the audience. He doesn't know. It's okay, it's okay. It's okay. And he starts and he's a master. Oh he says my ears are hurting, Zev. God. Damn it. And he then equalized the sound. I could not tell the difference. I thought it was great. stayed for the show. I said, go meet the cast. He said, no, I'm not going to go that far. I said, Andrew, you've got to do that. They know you're here. He said, no, I'll, I'll come back. I'll bring Tim Rice with me on Saturday. This was on a Tuesday or Wednesday. I'll bring Tim. He's got to see this. Well, Tim saw it already because Tim was my buddy. I knew I had the, the lyricist in my pocket. He was a sweetheart. So I called him. I said, "Andrew's coming back. Yeah, I know. you called me. We're moving this to Broadway. Where? I said the Royal Theatre, which is now called the Jacobs, on 45th Street. Fabulous theatre. They have everything done except for Andrew's blessing. Said, "Okay, let's. We'll nail him." So Saturday night he arrived. Tim was with him. Tim is about six four or five. Andrew is short. And uh, we see the show and we don't wait for him to go backstage. The cast is coming mm-hmm. right down, mingling with the audience, saying hello, signing autographs, whatever. Love everywhere. And they work their way to the aisle where Andrew and Tim sure. and I are standing. And, and they're just thanking him, thanking him. We moved it to Broadway, got re-reviewed again and it ran for three years. And it was so hot, I started three touring companies while it was on Broadway, which is unheard of. Each and every one of them opened in either Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, or St. Pete. And then we send, built it here and send it to end with a career.
1: So, before we started, you mentioned that you had never done a podcast before. And I have to say, I think that's great because as we're talking, it's almost like you've done everything. So here we found one thing that this is your first time to do, which yeah. is very mm-hmm. exciting. And the story I'm hearing is Ruth Eckerd Hall is a tremendous economic driver for Pinellas County. Mm -hmm. You build things, and building things always creates jobs. You educate people, and you give them skills, and then you help them take those skills out into the market. And you have brought business to downtown Clearwater. So one of the stories that I'm hearing you tell is what a strong economic driver the arts can be when it's got the the right direction and the right thought process behind it.
0: That's a great point. And the arts still do not get the respect that they deserve. And I can get on a soapbox and do it and all that. But let me spell it out to a listener, to somebody who is not aware of it. Okay. Example. We began with Van Morrison and we ended seven days later with Don Henley. And there were many other shows in between. In that seven day period, we played to 33,000 people and the zip codes were from everywhere you can imagine because those names you cannot get. Van Morrison has not been around for 20 years. So we brought people from everywhere. The fact that we ended up grossing four and a half million dollars in seven days and it's a record never reached before it was like at all, never, pretty awesome. And we're getting our membership. You know, every performing arts center has members. We grew our membership from three years ago to today by 700%. Wow. And because we're so diverse in what we do and where we do it in the market, we can reach more people. And so the result, we are a force in economic development. Sure. So we go, we get a study, an independent study, and lo and behold, we get the results that we generate 88,000 room nights a year. Wow. Now that is awesome. So we're delivering everywhere. And thank you very much for joining us for this
1: podcast.
0: It was a blast, huh? It is a blast.
1: Thank you very much, Zev Buffman of Ruth Eckerd Hall. We are so happy to have you here in Pinellas County. And
0: stay tuned for more news coming soon.
1: All right. We're
0: not done yet.
1: This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, Visit St. Petersburg, Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.